Good morning, everybody. Morning. Music is powerful, isn't it? I don't know about you. I mean, some of you might hate that song. For me, there's something about the acoustic guitar when it's played well, like really well. It just, it inspires me. That, the classic song, Free Fallen, that by itself is a great song, but man, John Mayer does it in a way that just speaks to me and evokes something in me. Music is powerful, and you might have felt that this morning during worship, but there's just something about it. I'm sure you all have a song you can think of, at least one, where it just, it does something to your heart, to your soul, right? It makes you feel something. It can remind you of a set of feelings, right? So there's songs for me that they don't necessarily remind me of a very specific point in my life, but there are songs where it evokes a feeling in me. I didn't remember a feeling that I had earlier in my life. That's one of those for me. There's a lot. But music has this special power over us to an extent. It's expressive, it's beautiful, it, it moves us. So what does this have to do with growth? We're doing this series, Five Secrets for Growth. Um, if you've been with us at all, you know that these aren't really secrets. You've probably heard them many times before. But the third one is this week, and we're talking about worship. It's the third secret for, for growth. If you want to grow, specifically now, this year, this month, whatever, then this is a secret that will help you, that will move you, that will press you in the right direction. Now, the word worship is a bit interesting because it gets used a lot in church. We use it a lot in a Christian context, and we almost exclusively use it to talk about our music. And that's a really big part of worship. That's not all it is, but it is a really, really big part. Music is powerful. Like I've said, the very first worship song I ever remember, like hearing and remembering was God of Wonders by Third Day. Anybody know that song? Like that song? All right. So I wasn't raised in, in, in a Christian home at all, so I don't have like the, the, the kid worship songs in my memory at all. I'm learning all those now. Um, but God of Wonders by Third Day, that's the first song that I really remember ever being a worship song. And God has used that to speak to me in so many ways over the years. And again, that's one of those songs that evokes a feeling in me. Actually, can we just play the first little bit of that song real quick? The first three chords just get me. That by itself, that's all I need to hear, and it just, it puts me in a mood. I'm serious. Some of you are like, wow, that's one of my least favorite worship songs ever. <laughs> but for me, it means a lot. God has used that to speak to my soul over the years. So like I said, worship, it's Music is a huge part of it, but it does go beyond just the music. I want to give you a definition because, well, actually, before I do that, I'll say this. Um, when we think about the word worship outside of a Christian context, it doesn't get used as much. And when it's used, you know, it's typically used to describe something like an unhealthy obsession, right? We've seen, I don't know, TVs or movies, uh, TV shows or movies where someone worships another person, it's like they have a shrine in their basement to their crush or something like that. We worship something, right? So that that's ten, tends to be how the rest of the world uses that word. But I want to point out that that actually is a little bit more of an accurate description of, of what worship is. It's to obsess over something. So I'll give you a definition to help focus us a little bit. Worship is inherently recognizing something or someone as all-important, deserving of my surrender and living as such. 
And this isn't just an intellectual recognition, right? This isn't looking at something like, oh yeah, I can see why that's important. I can see why, why that is deserving. It's, it's an emotional recognition. There's something in you, something happens in you that pulls you and draws you and your body, your soul, your spirit just feels, okay, this is worth something. This deserves my surrender. This deserves my sacrifice. So when it comes to worship, if we want to grow, the first thing that for you to know is that you are a worshiper. We are all worshipers. This is who you are. This is how you've been created. If you are a human being, you are a worshiper. That's part of what it means to be human, that you worship. You were created for that purpose. We all worship something, right? Because of sin doesn't necessarily mean that we worship God, but we all worship something. Going back to the Old Testament, I want to point something out. Back to the, the very beginning of humanity and the beginning of the, the nation of Israel, when God calls this random dude named Abram, renames him Abraham, and then uses him to spark this new nation of Israelites. When he first gives them the Ten Commandments, the issue is not what the, they should worship God. That's not the issue. God doesn't come to them and say, okay, now you have no idea what this thing called worship is, but I'm gonna tell you what worship is and then I want you to do it for me. That's not what it is. Worship is a given. So I wanna turn there. Exodus chapter 20. If you ever wanna know where the 10 commandments are, they're there also is in uh, Deuteronomy 5. But Exodus 20, verses three and four. These are the first two of the 10 commandments. The first one, you must not have any other gods but me. And the second one, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens, on the earth, or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, and am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. You see, worship is a given. The command is don't worship other things. Don't worship all of those things Worship is for me alone. Don't make yourself idols. Don't bow down to anything else. That assumes that that's what we do naturally. We are worshipers. We all worship something, right? So I want to take a moment and ask you, what, what is it for you? What do you obsess over? What consumes your thoughts? What, what tugs at your heart? Because that gives us a glimpse of it. Does your heart long for material things? I mean, that could be anything, money, nice things, a nice car, a nice house. For me, a lot of it's technology. I love tech. Um, nice clothes, right? Do you, does that pull at your heart? Is it recognition of some sort, right? Is it popularity, fame? Do you want people to notice you? Do you want success, achievement, perfection? Do you want beauty? Is that what your heart longs for? Is it a high of some sort? Right? Could be sex, alcohol, drugs, could even just be adrenaline, right? We all know those people that just are out in the world doing these absolutely insane things because they get high off of that adrenaline, right? Is that what your heart longs for? Does your heart long for another person? A boyfriend or a girlfriend? Even your kids? A friend? A spouse? Maybe a hypothetical spouse that doesn't exist? Is that what your heart longs for? Is that what tugs at you? Or ultimately, does your heart long for yourself? 
that can kind of be the all-encompassing one, right? Are your thoughts consumed with me, 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 what I need, what I want, what I can get out of this world, out of these relationships? So if you want to grow, first and foremost, recognize that you are a worshiper. That's who you are. So the question is not, do you worship or not? The question is, what are you worshiping? And that gets us into this topic of idolatry. So idolatry is, it can be a weird word for us. I mean, for those of us who have spent a lot of time in church, we're like, okay, yeah, I've heard the word before. This is a weird word, though. <laughs> Let's just call that out. It's a weird word, and especially when we look in the Old Testament and see how does God describe idolatry? How does, I mean, how does the Bible describe idolatry? It's kind of weird. And we don't, I can't really relate with it very much because basically what happens in the, Old Testament, in the Old Testament with these ancient people, they would craft images, little statues, out of a plethora of different materials. It could be wood, could be gold, could be silver, could be ivory. They would just craft this image. They would give it a name and then they would bow down before it and praise it. <laughs> to, to me, I don't know about you, to me that seems ridiculous. I'm like, okay, why would anybody ever do that? <laughs> But that's how the Old Testament describes it. But I want to point out that their idols were meant to meet their needs. They were meant to meet something in their life, some felt need. That's what their gods, their idols were meant to do. And if we look at the list that we just referenced earlier, I just have the categories up there, but you can fill in the blank. If we look at that list, we are no less idolaters today. Our idolatry has just changed. It just takes a different form. The major idols of our day don't necessarily have names, personalities, statues. They don't necessarily have those things, but they steal our heart from God all the same. We chase them. John Calvin said that our hearts are factories of idols. When one gets tired out, we just make a new one. These are all things that we seek to fulfill us, to, to meet some perceived felt need that ultimately God wants to fulfill in us himself. That is why God doesn't want us to have idols. He doesn't want us to worship other things because these are things that he wants to give us himself. Have you ever thought about this? this, this it grieves God's heart when we seek for something in another person or in material things that he longs to give us himself. That's what grieves his heart. If you're a parent, I'm sure you can feel this too, right? I mean, if your kid is looking off and running off with, with a bad group of friends or something, they're, they're searching for something, yearning for something, some sense of approval of, of uh, I don't know, popularity of fame. It's, it's whatever they're looking for, but if they're looking for it in the wrong place, you as a parent want to look at your kid and be like, oh, don't you know that you already have that in me and in your family and in the people that truly love you? And, and God, God sees us the same way. When we're running around looking for something that only he can give us, he's just grieving and saying, man, I want to give that to you myself. And I'm the only one who can truly give it to you anyway. One of the most poignant examples of this is Exodus 32. Um, you can turn there if you'd like. I'm just going to kind of paraphrase a little bit of it. Exodus 32, this is, this is the golden calf for the ancient Israelites. If you've ever heard this story, it's a pretty famous story. It's a weird one. It's one that I... Is, I've learned a lot of different things from it throughout the years. But basically what happens is God has just delivered the Israelites from Egypt, from slavery. And he's guiding them through the wilderness. He takes them to Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up this mountain. 
hears from God and gets all of his instructions, including the Ten Commandments. He's up there for 40 days and 40 nights. So in the grand scheme of things, it's not that long. But if you can imagine, people were really impatient, even more so nowadays. 40 days passed, and like, wait, what happened to that guy Moses? So if we look right at the beginning of Exodus 32, it says, when the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, Moses' brother, and they say, come on, make us some gods who can lead us. You hear that? So they can lead us. Their need was leadership. God brought them out of slavery, and they're sitting at the base of this mountain, aimless. They have nowhere to go, nothing to do, and they're just waiting for God to say something. They get impatient. They want leadership. That's the need that they're looking for. So they look to Aaron and say, okay, make us some gods that can lead us. That was the purpose. And Aaron, like adult, says, okay, <laughs> sure, why not? It's literally what, basically what it says. So, so Aaron takes the, some of their gold and fashions this idol, a golden calf. I have no idea why he picked a calf, of all things. But when the people saw it, they exclaim and say, oh, or he exclaims, oh, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So God just did this amazing, unbelievable work, delivers them from slavery. Now they make this weird golden statue, and this is the one that took you out of slavery. But then I want you to notice something. Aaron sees how excited the people are. People get excited. He's like, oh, cool, I'm doing something good. So he builds an altar in front of the calf. And in verse 5, he says, Then he announces, Tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. And if you don't know this, this changed the way I read Scripture when I found this out. Um, whenever you see the Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, that's God's name. That's Yahweh. So back in old Jewish tradition, what happened is that they were so adamant about not misusing God's name that every time they wrote the letters, yod veh ha Yahweh, they would underneath it write the vowels of Adonai, which is the Lord, because they wanted to make a mental note. Every time I read this word, I'm not actually going to say God's name. I'm going to say Adonai, the Lord, instead, because we want to protect ourselves and not misuse his name. Now, that, tra that, that uh, tradition has, has come into our English translations, so what happens is we just put it in all caps instead. So every time you see that, that's... Yahweh, that's God's name. That's the name he's given to his people and to us. So what Aaron does here, he says, tomorrow we will throw a festival for Yahweh. They make an idol. They say, this is the one that led us out of Egypt, and this God's name is Yahweh. So I'm curious, for some of us, maybe for you, is the name of your idol Jesus? Think about that for a second. Is the one that you worship some form of Jesus that's been slightly tweaked or changed in a way that you like better, in a way that is more digestible, in a way that is more likable? We have to ask ourselves this regularly. I have to ask myself this regularly because if we are not worshiping the God of the Bible, 
the Jesus that walked the face of the earth 2,000 years ago that we learn about and who is revealed in Scripture, we're not worshiping the real Jesus. We may be worshiping the same name, some of the same stuff, but it's not the same God. If you missed last week, I'd really encourage you to check it out. I, I preached on Scripture. And this is one of the reasons why this has to be our treasure. We have to hold on to this and get into our Bible all the time, or else our hearts are factories for idols, right? We will produce something that is not actually God, and we will worship that. We have to be careful. So hear me on this too. What I'm not saying is that all of your beliefs have to line up 100% perfectly in order for you to be worshiping Jesus, right? Because that's not gonna happen. And there's plenty of gray area. There's plenty of, ish, there's plenty of areas in scripture and in theology that we just can disagree on. There's gray areas we don't fully know. But our goal is always to get as close to the Bible as we possibly can. What I'm trying to say here is that we are all idolaters, myself included. We are worshipers, and because of sin, our hearts are prone to make our own idol, something to worship. These are the things that we give too much of our heart to. That might be an easy way to think about it, right? It could be little things. It could be extremely little things. How many of you have had one of these things? How many of you spend inordinate amounts of time on this, doing something that does not really matter. I do. <laughs> and when I recognize it and work to, to fix that and remedy, remedy that, I find it pulls my heart even more. You ever feel that? It doesn't have to be a phone. It could be anything, right? Sometimes you give too much of your heart to your kids. Kids deserve your heart, but they should not be your God. You hear what I'm saying? What tugs at your heart? To truly grow in our worship, we have to understand what our idols are, call them by name, and then deal with them. And that can take time, right? Some of us, we're brand new to this whole Christianity thing. We're brand new to the Bible. For us, part of it is just figuring out, okay, it's, it, what do I think about Jesus and does that match with this book? And that can take years, to figure that out. God still teaches me new things about him every day when I come to this. So God is still pruning me and, and preparing me to worship him as he has revealed himself. That takes time. But when we find out we have an idol, when we, have, when we find out that there's something we are giving too much of our heart to, we have to deal with it. And these could be really good things. There's a reason that God commands the Israelites. You can tell that I've been in the Old Testament a lot recently. Let me go back to Exodus. Uh, there's a reason that God commands the Israelites to burn and destroy idols of the people that they're conquering. When they go into a new land, they take the land that God has given them, has promised them, he always commands them to destroy the idols there completely. Well, it's because they're enticing. So Exodus 34 Verse 15 through 17. God says, You must not make a treaty of any kind with the people living in the land. They lust after their gods, offering sacrifices to them. They will invite you to join them in their sacrificial meals, and you will go with them. Then you will accept their daughters, who sacrifice to other gods as wives for your sons. And they will seduce your sons to commit adultery against me by worshiping other gods. 
So a little bit of context. Unfortunately, people have used this passage to say, oh, you, interracial marriage is terrible. Like, that's kind of probably an older, older argument. That is not at all what this passage is talking about. The heart of God in here is idols will seduce you. Be careful of that. Don't put yourself in a position where these other idols will take control of your heart and seduce you away from God. That the way that things work, if something has the power to seduce you, the more time you give it, the more time you entertain it, the likelier you are to go with it. So you got to deal with it soon. Deal with it quick. And more than anything, I want to preface this too. This is a communal act. When we deal with idolatry, this is something we do together, right? So there are things that we need to deal with that we cannot do alone. Hear me on that. Addictions of any kind, it's a form of idolatry, right? And I'm not here to, to make you feel bad about it. I'm here to say we got to work together because what it really is at its heart is something that's trying to steal you away from your God. That's its goal. So if you need help, please, please, please ask for it. If you're, if you're watching online, uh, on the online platform, there's a way for you to request prayer and you can enter with us there and, and we would love to figure out how we can walk alongside you there. If you're in the room, find me or Brian or someone else afterwards that you trust and ask for help. We need to ask for help. Especially once something comes to the forefront of your mind, like, wow, this is actually an issue for me. Ask for help. Don't try to go through it alone. It's a communal practice. But ultimately what this is, is that God is jealous for you. God is jealous for you and your heart. He wants you. So please don't hear this message as, as being something like, wow, I'm really screwed up and I gotta fix this in my life in order for me to be close with God. That's not the heart of the message. The heart of the message is God loves you. He is jealous for you. He is crazy about you. And he wants to get rid of the thing that's trying to steal you away from him. And finally, this last point that I want to really camp out in for the rest of this morning is sacrifice. Worship is inherently characterized by sacrifice. Romans 12, 1 through 2. This is Paul writing. This is probably a passage you've heard before. Um, it's often used in a, a, a message on worship. But Paul writes, he says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God, because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Basically, give everything that you are to God. Everything, your entire life, all of who you are, present that to God as a holy and living sacrifice. That is true worship. And that's something that we need to, to understand and know. I can tell you, uh, the way that God got a hold of my heart when I was a teenager, I kind of danced around with him for about three years. Kind of treated him like a hobby. I was really interested. I got to know the Bible better. I got to, you know, started going to youth group here and there. I started doing things, and I started pursuing him just a little bit, but I was really dancing around him. It wasn't until I was 16 when I got in a big car accident that really shook my life and, and, and caused me to ask some difficult questions. It wasn't until then that I finally felt like God was saying, I want all of you. I don't want just this part. I want every piece of who you are. 
And it's at that moment, that's when I made that decision. Okay, God, I don't know what it means. I don't know what it means yet, but I'm going to give you everything. That was the start of my journey. But that's what we need to do as Christ followers. People, if we want to grow, we have to give him everything. And it's a sacrifice, right? Every, every aspect of our life, we need to turn over to him. So that means your lifestyle, means your time, it means your finances. It might mean your friends, it might mean the, the content that you consume. It could mean a lot of different things. It could be where you live. Sacrificing everything, handing that to God and say, okay, all I have is yours, you do with it what you want. And this is costly. Worship, sacrifice in general, should cost us something, right? If your worship does not cost you something, it's not really worship. Period. And think about all the other things. Think about the things that we worship, right? The things that we give our time and our energy to. If you watch sports, and, and you know, Amanda's going to hold this over me now that I'm saying it out loud. <laughs> if you watch football, even if you just watch one game a week, it's the Broncos because it's the best team, that's like three or four hours a week that you invest to watching a screen. That's what I do. Is that too much time? Is that drawing? Too, I mean, you, you're, you're literally spending that time. That's four, three or four hours that you could spend doing something else with your family, doing some personal growth, getting in your Bible. There, you are making a conscious decision to pay it's a transaction. Here's my time, and this is what I get out of it. We do that with everything. If your goal in life is to have a really nice house and a really nice car, it's going to cost you a lot of money, a lot of time, potentially, building that wealth. So why should we expect our worship for God to look anything different? It should cost us something because it's meaningful. It's costly. I want to give you a quote by a guy named Richard Foster. He says, as worship begins in holy expectancy, it ends in holy obedience. Holy obedience saves worship from becoming an opiate, an escape from the pressing needs of modern life. If all our worship is just singing on a Sunday morning, we very well might be treating worship music as an opiate, as a drug to make us feel a little bit better for a little bit on a Sunday morning to get us through, quote unquote, the next week. That's not what, what musical worship is supposed to be. It has to affect every aspect of our lives, a living sacrifice, and that shows up in obedience. God, you tell me what you want to do, and I will go do it. If I read in your word that you have commanded your followers to do this, I'm going to go do the same. But there needs to be a balance. At the very beginning, I told you I'd come back to this music piece, right? There needs to be a balance because I, I don't at all want to downplay what happens on a Sunday morning. We're basically talking about two, two sides of the same coin, right? Musical worship is an essential part of the Christian life. It is absolutely essential. So I'm gonna show that Romans passage again. Unfortunately, what happens when I see people use this, this passage, not every time, but more often than not, I almost hear them downplay Sunday morning worship or just musical worship in general. The thought process goes something along the lines of like, well, worship extends way past Sunday. 
It should be all of our life. Every aspect, I should be worshiping God on the golf course on, you know, I don't know when people go golfing, but, you know, we can worship God wherever we go. So therefore, God understands my worship on a Sunday morning. If I want to worship with my hands in my pocket or if I kind of want to sing really quietly, somebody, God understands because I worship him with the rest of my life. That's a gross misuse of this passage. Musical worship matters. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the Judeo-Christian religion, right, all the way back to its, its roots in, in Abram and Abraham, all the way through the, the, the history of the Jewish people and into the Christian religion, into Jesus and his fulfillment of the scriptures, it has always been characterized, worship has always been characterized by music, by lifting our voices in song and praising his name. It's always been a part of it. You can't lop it off. And there's also a point, I don't know if you noticed this either, but almost every heavenly picture that we see in Scripture is of worship. Like audible, praising God with voices. Isaiah 6, 1 through 4. This is a point where Isaiah is being called into his ministry. And he's caught up into this, this vision of God's throne room, essentially. And it says this. It was in the year... King Uzziah died, that I, Isaiah speaking, that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, basically big angels, uh, each having six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. They were calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. It's praise. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations and the entire building was filled with smoke. That's, that's an epic worship service right there. For those of you that don't like like fog machines or haze machines in a worship service, <laughs> sorry, but there's, <laughs> it's in the Bible. <laughs> so that's what we're going to get next. Okay, Brian, we're going to get a haze machine. <laughs> Just kidding. But when we see these pictures of heaven in the Bible, it's of worship. Another great one, if you want to read it this week, Revelations chapter 4. Sorry, Revelation. Bad habit. Revelation chapter 4. There's another picture of heaven, and there's people and elders and and beings bowing down to God, praising his name. A.W. Tozer is one of um, of my favorite writers and theologians. Um, He said this. This will get your attention. Any man or woman on this earth who is bored and turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. Again, don't fall into guilt here, please. Hear this. It just means God wants to continue to prepare you for the gift that is his presence in heaven, right? There's more work to be done. Worship requires sacrifice, and our musical worship requires sacrifice all the same. It should cost us something. When we come every Sunday morning, collectively as his church, to sing, to praise his name, it should cost us something. The easiest thing to point to, I'll say this, is your comfort zone. It should cost you some comfort, right? If you are comfortable jumping up and down with your hands in the air, like, you're a unicorn. That terrifies me. (laughs) But I can tell you, it's the moments that I have sacrificed my comfort and have tried to ignore the people around me and just made this time about me and God and I raise my hands, I get to my knees, I do something 
to show my praise and my dedication to him, those are the moments where God speaks to me the most, and that's those are the moments where worship, musical worship becomes the most powerful for me. It should cost us something. So when we come, we'll have a moment in a little bit to sing two more songs. I want to encourage you, think about what is something that could cost you, but that would show God how much he means to you. Raising your hands, bowing to your knees are two really common postures to take. That means a lot. For some of you, that might just mean singing in the first place. (laughs) Some of you hate your voice, but you know what? God loves your voice. Doesn't matter what you sound like, God loves it. Worship should cause, it should cost you something. And really what happens, it's in song, in praise, in proclaiming these words of truth that we sing and expressing our love and our devotion through music, this beautiful gift that God has given us to express our heart. So when we do that collectively as God's church, as his bride, that we remember our God, we posture ourselves in such a way to go back into the rest of our week in obedience. This, is a, this should be a springboard for us. We worship God co- collectively together on a Sunday morning and then we go into our weeks, go back into our daily lives, worshiping him all the same with our obedience. So I wanna ask you, wherever you're at, this is, we live in America, we're all consumers, right? We've been conditioned that way, but try to check your consumerism at the door. Stop thinking, oh, you know, I don't really like that song or I'm not a huge fan of this style or it's too loud, or it's this or that, you know, I get really frustrated, you know, I would really wish if they did this song. Check your consumerism at the door and make this about an offering, a gift to God. You know, personally, I can get, sometimes I get really frustrated when people say, well, I can't possibly offer God anything, right? Because God has everything, he doesn't need anything. It's not true. You can offer God a gift. It's your worship. There's a reason, if you read the Old Testament, so much, so often, it refers to the sacrifices of the Israelites as a special gift to the Lord, a pleasing aroma, right? When you bring yourself and you sacrifice yourself, bring an offering before God in whatever shape and form it is, it's pleasing to him. It's a gift to your God. It makes him happy. So I want to encourage you this week. You could, it could start today. Spend some time looking through your life and figuring out, okay, what are my idols? What are the things that I give too much of my heart to? And how can I take steps to to change that, to deal with that, to make sure that I'm giving God everything first? Spend some time doing that this week. Spend some time looking at the rest of your life and say, am I really obeying God? Am I really obeying him with my finances? Am I really obeying him with my time? Am I really obeying him with my relationships? with my family? Am I really listening to his word and putting it in action? And then three, you have a chance right now this morning to put something into practice and that's to sacrifice something in your worship. If you haven't raised your hands before, raise your hands. If, you, if you've never tried getting on your knees before in worship, I encourage you to try that if you're able. It can be really powerful. If you don't sing, try singing. <laughs> Ignore, tune out the people next to you. It's about you with God. But whatever it is, take a step. If you want to go into the back corner and dance around, 
Josh is back there. I, I want to see you dancing, Josh, okay? If you want to do that, do it. Whatever you do, worship the Lord with your heart. Music is a powerful thing. It is an unbelievable gift from God for us to express ourselves. And the more that we worship God, the more that we, we use this gift, the more it will continue to tug at our heart, right? That, that can take time. If you, even if you don't feel like worshiping this morning, worship. Do it in obedience. And know that God will receive that as a precious gift to him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this morning. We thank you so much that you sacrificed everything for us. You gave us your son. You died on the cross for us. You gave us literally everything you could so that we could be in a relationship with you. Help us to return the favor and to give you a sacrifice and offering of our lives, of our worship. And we ask that you would just grow us in this more and more. Help us to become a people that are characterized by our worship of you. That you become the most important thing to us in every aspect of our lives. Reveal to us the ways that we've strayed. Reveal to us the ways that we have tried to fill that void in our life with something else. Help us to deal with it. And then we ask you to, to help us to learn what that means to come to you, for you to fill all of our needs. So we thank you, Jesus. We give you this morning. We give you this time. We pray that you would be glorified above all else. Amen. We stand and sing.